0: Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word.
1: we're looking at probably the most controversial um, thing that we that we will be talking about during this section, during this session. For some of you, it will be uh, it'll be familiar territory. For others, perhaps it will not be. But the title gives that away, and that the and it's, uh, the title is a question today, and that is for whom did Christ die? We're going to be talking about that. Just by by way of review since it 's been a couple of weeks since we got together let 's just take a few minutes to kind of get back to where we where we uh, uh, where we're supposed to be. remember that uh, Genesis chapters one and two tell us about the creation of human beings and in fact it tells us about the creation altogether and on the sixth day God created man subsequently he created the woman out of the man. Uh, it was a great situation. It was a perfect environment in every way. Uh, What we discover is that the man and the woman uh, were very secure. They experienced security in that environment. They were loved by God. Uh, They loved God. They apparently loved each other. They had a good relationship. And security is something that uh, inherently all of us want. We want to love and we want to be loved Uh, particularly unconditionally by someone else. Another thing that we saw is that in the garden that they had uh, significance. That is, that they had purposeful work to do. And it wasn't just work that God said. Now, this is the way you use a hoe, and this is the way I want you to till the garden. No, uh, the Lord just told Adam and, and, and Eve to take care of the garden, and it was left up to them to determine how to do that. Uh, Remember, it was Adam who came up with all of the names of the animals. So there's a sense in which there's a a purposefulness in what they were doing. There was a reason for existing, and uh, and they they seem to understand that. Again, that's something that all of us want to have. We want to have it today. We want to feel like there's a reason that I'm here that one of these days when it comes checkout time and we, we make that, uh, that trip to the, to the mortuary, or at least our bodies do, we would like to think that somehow we have left behind some sort of impact in the area where we live. That's normal. Uh, that's part of what it means to be a human being. Another thing that, uh, that they experienced there in the garden was what I call sense. That is that things made sense. And uh, I think if you look at this, what you discover is that this, this covers a number of things about human beings in terms of our security, that has to do with our feelings, uh, we, we feel loved, we love other people. In terms of our significance, that has to do with our, our volition, that is that we make choices and those choices make a difference. And in terms of uh, things making sense, we're talking about being able to use our reason. Now, obviously, some of these things overlap, but it, was, it just seemed like it was a, a perfect kind of situation. Well, it was at the end of Genesis chapter 2, but then something happened in Genesis chapter 3 that changed everything, and what was that? Sin, that's right. S-I-N, a three-letter word. Uh, the man and the woman fell into sin, it's clear that the Bible puts that uh, responsibility at the, at, the, at the feet of the man. Uh, you read that very clearly in the, uh, in the New Testament. As a result, the, uh, uh, the dignity that man had uh, was diminished by the fall. And what man began to experience was depravity. And by depravity, we mean that every part of the human personality is touched by sin in some way. Uh, It doesn't mean that any of us are as bad as we could be. We could always be worse. We could turn into serial killers. If any of you are that, don't let me know before we get through here. But uh, the idea of depravity is that every part of us, every part of our being, the way we think, the way we feel, the things that we do are touched by sin in some way. Maybe not a lot, but it's still touched by sin. And what we see there is that this, this image of God, man and the woman in the image of God, when they fell, that image was marred. It was distorted. And what God's plan is, and it was His plan before He ever even created the world, was that he was going to populate this world one day with people who were just like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we took a we took a long time talking about that. Not only were uh, men and women and boys and girls affected by the sin and the fall, but also creation itself. And we didn't talk about this before, but I just pulled a couple of verses out of the Scriptures. I put them in your notes there. In the right-hand column of your notes, that passage from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 and following, Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now what he's talking about is at the end of the age when Christ comes and the resurrection occurs, he said things are really going to change then. He said, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. That is revealed in resurrection glory. When our redeemed souls are linked together with brand new redeemed bodies. He said, even creation is looking for that. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And you look around, I mean, there's all kinds of things going on. we see some environmental problems. That's the creation groaning. Why is it groaning? Because of the sin that occurred there in the garden. See, the, the Bible's clear. Whenever we sin, we don't simply affect ourselves. We always involve other people, and it can even involve the situation around us, as Paul talks about here. He goes on to say, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that is, Because we're saved people and uh, when it says the first fruits of the Spirit, he's talking about the fact that the Spirit of God indwells us as the people of God. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Remember, when God saves us, what He does is He redeems our souls. He redeems our spirits. We're new people. But what happens to our bodies? Well, they keep on aging. Uh, you know, they get older. I, I, I get tickled sometimes when I read this, and I think we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. Well, sometimes i groan grown outwardly. You get up early in the morning, and you know, it's a, you have to kind of shake off the kinks, and you think, oh, man, I just... I hate to face that universal machine and, the, and you know all these other instruments of torture that I've got here at the house. It'd be easier just to lie back down here for about another hour and a half and just get a few more Zs. But uh, no, you know, we're trying to keep, at least I'm trying to keep what, what I've got left uh, in, in fairly good shape. But he says, we're waiting eagerly for our adoption as the redemption of our body. This world is not our final destination. One of these days when Christ returns, our new souls that we have now as the people of God will be reunited with new bodies. Bodies like, like uh, the, very, the body of Jesus Himself. So those are some of the things that we've been talking about. Now, I want to go a little further than that. I want to offer to you an acrostic. Uh, it'll, it sort of helps you to remember, and, and you'll see that a little over half of this we've already talked about. And the acrostic is one called TULIP. Now this is not original with me. This has been around for years and years. The T in the TULIP stands for total depravity. That's what we were just talking about. And that is that as human beings, every part of our personality is adversely affected by sin. We also refer to this sometime as radical corruption. But if you use that term, in, uh, in this acrostic then it reads rulip and nobody knows what a rulelip is, so that's the reason we use the tulip. Uh, but again, you go and I put some verses, I, well, I put verse references in your notes there from Romans chapter 3. We spent a couple of sessions talking about that. Remember what it says? It says, there is none who seeks after God. There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. Uh, We've gone our own way. Total depravity, nice people maybe. Maybe we do philanthropic kinds of things at times. But the truth is, is that every part of our personality is adversely affected by sin. And because we're all sinners by birth, by nature, and by choice, God says that there is one thing that awaits a sinner. The Bible says the soul that sins, it shall Die. That's right. So that doesn't sound real great. You're going to die and then face the judgment, all those kinds of things. Well, the way that God has dealt with that, the whole world is guilty before God. We've seen that. The way God has dealt with that is through what we call unconditional election. And unconditional... <coughs> Election means that God has chosen people for himself. And you'll recall from our study that in Ephesians chapter 1, that's the premier passage, but also in a number of other passages, we discover that God made this choice before he ever even put the world, before the world came into existence, that he had already chosen a people for himself. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, There's nothing in the Bible where you see the the members of the Godhead wringing their hands saying, Oh my, oh my, what will we do, what will we do? I never thought this was going to happen. No, God had already made a perfect provision for that, and that is in time that Christ would come and die for the sins of his people. In fact, that's what we're going to be talking about more today in terms of limited atonement. But this election of God, this God's choosing a people for himself, is unconditional. It's not based on what he sees in us. Some people think, well, election is God looks down the tunnel of time. He says, okay, there's old Bradshaw down there, and he's going to be confronted with the gospel. And let's see. Yep, yep, yep. He's going to accept the truth, so I'll pick him, you know? Well, if that were true, then that would mean that really my salvation depends on me and my response to the Lord. And it, but and the other problem with that is if we go back to square one, and you ought, we ought to always go back to square one, if God were to be looking down the, the channels of time, the tunnel of time and looking at me and see me confronted with the gospel, what would my answer be to the call of the gospel? It would be no. Why? Because there are none who seek God. They've all gone out of the way. So it's up to God to do something to bring me to himself. Now, what God's done, and and again, we're just reviewing because we've talked about this in detail for seven sessions now. Uh, God makes his choice. Uh, remember, he said, "Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated?" We don't. We, we have a problem with that. We say, "Well, how, how could how could God hate Esau?" Well, that's not the real problem. The problem is, how could God love Jacob? It certainly wasn't anything that he saw in Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver, but it was just that God was pleased to set His affection on Jacob. And if you're a believer, God's been pleased to set his affection on you, not because of who we are, not because of any potential that he sees in us, not because of any of those things, but for one reason and one reason only, and that's just because it pleased him to do so. He's God. He can do that. Now, if God has chosen us, the the problem arises still, if God is holy and righteous, God's got to deal with sin, back to square one. If we're all sinners, God can't just close his eyes to that and say, okay, Bradshaw, I'm going to let you slide. I know you're doing the best you can, so I'm just going to let you off the hook. Because if God does it, if God were to say that, what would that say about the character of God? What would that say about his holiness? What would that say about his purity? What would that say about his righteousness and justice? See, it would demean all of those things because God would not be true to His character. So what has God done? God had already planned that He would send His Son in time and space to die for the sins of His people. And that's what we're going to be talking about here in just a few few minutes. Now, Christ dies, and yet... How is that applied to our lives? Well, what we've talked about for the last two sessions is what the I stands for, and that's irresistible grace. That is, if what God does is he invades our lives, just like Paul on the road to Damascus. Uh, I'm sorry, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. What was he getting ready to do? persecute Christians, throw them in jail, kill them. It didn't matter. And when he did all those things, did he think he was doing the right thing? Oh, yeah. He said, man, this, this is going to please God. I'm doing what's pleasing to God. And yet on his way, all of a sudden, I mean just out of the blue, the guy stopped dead in his tracks. He's blinded for three days. And his life just turns around. next time you hear any words coming out of... Uh, Saul of Tarsus' mouth is praise for Jesus and saying, Hey, all this stuff in the Old Testament that we've been talking about and thinking about, hey, all that stuff points to Jesus. Now, how in the world could that happen? Well, what happens is that the Spirit of God, all those who have been chosen by God, Christ has died for their sins, and all of those the Holy Spirit will irresistibly draw to himself. Remember What Jesus said in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And those who come to me I will never cast out. Now usually all we hear is the last part of that verse. Those who come to me I will never cast out. That's true. But what about the first part? Those whom the Father gives me will come to me. They will come. It's not they might come. No, it's that they will come and when they come The the Son will never cast them away. So God irresistibly, through His Spirit, draws us to Himself. And remember, we talked about this. He regenerates us. That is, He brings us to life out of the deadness of our sinfulness. He brings our spirits alive. When He regenerates us, He gives us faith. He gives us repentance. And what do we do? We express that faith in Christ. We express repentance for uh, toward God. And what does he do? He saves us. He has mercy on us. And then, of course, the P stands for uh, perseverance. It also stands for preservation. God is the one who preserves us. Uh, when God starts off with a hundred sheep, how many does he wind up with? Not 99. He always comes in with 100. God preserves his own. If When he starts out, when he set his affection on his people, and he brings them all safely home, and they all will persevere. Why do they persevere? Because God is preserving. Now, we haven't talked about this yet. We'll get to this in another, uh, in another week or so. All right, now let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about this, uh, this issue... Of limited atonement. Uh, notice uh, in your notes there, in the uh, in the left-hand column under that uh, topic, limited atonement. We've already talked about the fact that Christ came as the substitutionary sacrifice. That is, when He died on the cross, that He didn't did He die for His sins? No. Why not? He didn't have any. That's right. He didn't have any sins. He's the sinless one. That's the reason that uh, that he is so perfect. Remember, one of the things we celebrate at Christmas is the incarnation. You go to the grocery store on a cold day and say, man, some chili would be great good, good today. So you buy chili con carne, chili with flesh, chili with meat. In the incarnation God took on meat God took on human flesh and in doing so what we see is he is the perfect high priest for us because he's a hundred percent God remember Philip said Jesus show us the Father and that'll be enough for us and Jesus response was what you've seen me you've seen the Father so He's the, he perfectly represents God the Father to us, but because He's taken on human flesh, He perfectly represents us to the Father. And that's what He does at the cross. He represents us. And in fact, He does that even to this day as our great high priest where He, where he ministers before the Lord on, the, on our behalf. Now, and what uh, what... What he did in this atonement, remember we talked about two words, propitiation, that is that uh, uh, that has to do with the turning away of God's wrath. God's wrath was kind of like the water behind a dam. It was just, you know, I mean, it had all spilled out in Noah's day. And then you kind of see it washing over the top at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah as the wrath of God kind of falls there. But by and large, that wrath had just been sort of backing up behind the dam. And so what God does at the cross is that that He pours out His wrath on His Son. Now, is it because His Son deserved it? No, He was a perfect Son. Why did He pour it out on Him? Because He had become the substitute for God's people. And the reason He could be the substitute was because He was sinless. In other words, if, if uh, I'm a sinner and I needed somebody to take my place, well, I could, I could come to Mr. Gibson and say, look, how about taking my place and, and dying for me? But see, he couldn't do that because he's got the same problem I've got. He's a sinner. All of us are sinners. But here's one, Jesus, who is not a sinner. Now, he's fully human, so he corresponds to me that way. The blood of goats and bulls couldn't take away sin. The Bible's clear about that. But this person, Jesus, fully God, fully man, and yet had no sin. So he corresponds to me, and he's exactly what I need. And the wrath of God is poured out on him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me for the first time in all of eternity? The first and the second persons of the Godhead, who had always been face to face, were now turned away from each other. I, I I can't begin to imagine what that must have been like. The other word is the word justification, and that word has to do with God declaring us to be righteous, acquitting us of our sins. Well, how could God possibly acquit any of us of our sins? We're sinners. If you uh, if you if you go into if you look at just contemporary uh, legal type proceedings, what is the basis for an acquittal? Well, you say uh, a person is found not guilty. Well, do you think there's any possibility any of us going to be found not guilty of being sinners? <laughs> no, because he uh, said, well, there was, there was a lack of ev- there wasn't enough evidence to prove that old Bradshaw is a sinner. No, there's There's way plenty of evidence to prove just the opposite of that. Well, there's maybe uh, jurors. You need to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, I'll tell you, it's way beyond reasonable doubt that I'm a sinner. So from a contemporary standpoint, I could never be acquitted. I could never be declared not guilty. But because Christ takes the place of his people, he not only receives the wrath that his people deserved on himself. But now all the perfection that he has is credited to them. And God declares us acquitted of our sins. He slams down the gavel and he says, not guilty. Not guilty, why? Because I'm not a sinner? No, not guilty because my debt has been paid in full by someone else. We'll see that here. In uh, just a minute. Now, notice the question arises for whom did Christ die? And there are four possibilities. And I've put them up here A, B, C, and D. Christ died for all of the sins of all people, for all of the sins of some people, for some of the sins of all people or for some of the sins of some people. I, I can't think of any other options unless the option is he didn't die for any sins of anybody anywhere. And if that's if that were true, then you and I need to already be at lunch because we're certain we would certainly be wasting our time right now. Well if you look at this just from a strictly a logical standpoint, you can you can eliminate the last two already if Christ died for some of the sins of all people or some of the sins of some people, what does that mean about the rest of their sins? If he hasn't paid that price, then uh, they're still in the same boat, whether you're talking about one sin or talking about one million sins. In fact, remember what James said? He said, "If, uh, if you're guilty of one infraction of the law, you're guilty of what? Yeah. You're guilty of the whole thing. So we can eliminate, uh, eliminate those two right away. It's, it's, it's certainly neither C nor D. So that leaves A and B, and at least in our little scenario. The most popular one today, and the one you hear talked about the most, is, uh, is A, for all the sins of all people. Well. This, uh, If you think about this, this is what's known as universalism. That means that everybody everywhere will be, uh, will be saved. You say, no, 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 it doesn't mean that at all. It says he died for all the sins of all people, but you've got to, you've got to believe in Jesus. See, that's the exception. Well, wait a minute now. If we're talking about exceptions, you're talking about the, the exception is unbelief. That is, this works as long as you believe. Well, well, what is unbelief? See, unbelief is a sin. And if Christ died for all the sins of all people, then He even died for that. Otherwise, what you've got is if He died for all the sins of all people, except the sin of unbelief, then you've got this one right here, C, he died for some of the sins of all people. That is, he died for all sins except this sin right here. And we've already rejected these two. Now that leaves us with one option. And that's option B. And that is, he died for all the sins of some people. Now who are these some people? God's elect. Those whom God chose before the foundation of the world, those for whom Christ came and died, those to whom the Holy Spirit comes and irresistibly brings them to faith, regenerating them, granting them faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And what's the next phrase? And that not of yourselves, It is what? The gift of God. Even the faith that we express in God is what? It's a gift. God gives that to us. And repentance. And because He's working in our lives, He preserves us, we persevere, and all of God's people are brought safely in. Now let's look at some passages in the Bible that bear this out because obviously that's that's where the uh, that's where the real proof is. Notice the Notice the uh, in the right-hand column of your notes, uh, beginning down at Matthew chapter one, verse twenty-one. This is something that we read uh, close to this time of the year every year uh, when we start uh, celebrating the uh, the celebrating Christmas. This is part of the Christmas story. She will give, speaking of Mary, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Now, the word, the name Jesus means Yahweh or Jehovah saves. The word, the name Jesus in the New Testament is the same thing as the name Joshua in the Old Testament. It was a it was a relatively common name. Uh, that's why he's referred to in the Gospels as Jesus of Nazareth. He's not Jesus of Bib City or Jesus of Phoenix City. He's Jesus of Nazareth. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because now notice what it says, because he will save who? His people from their sins. Now the question is, who are his people? Is that talking about the Jews? He will, he will save the Jews from their sins. Well, remember, Eli, Judas was a Jew and he was not a saved person even though he was one of the disciples. Can't mean that. Notice the passage from John chapter 10, uh, verse 3 and then verses 14 and following. It says, he's, this is the passage about the good shepherd and Jesus is speaking. It says, He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Isn't that amazing? Think think about the the picture he's drawing for us there. He says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me in the same way that the Father knows me and that I know the Father. Now you talk about intimacy. And notice, I lay down my life for what? For the sheep. I have, now he's he's speaking to some, uh, to his own disciples here. Uh, He says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. He's talking, now what he's talking about there, he's talking about the Gentiles those among the Gentiles who were chosen by God. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Remember, that's what Ephesians 2 is all about. What is God doing? He's taking his people from among Jews and from among Gentiles and placing them into one new body, which is called what? The church. Not the stick, not the stones and the mortar, but the real, the real body of Christ, the people whom He is calling to Himself. Notice what uh, Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where he says, Be shepherds of the church of God. Now he's talking, not talking about a denomination here. He's just referring to the church. Be shepherds of the church of God, which He bought with His own blood. What was it that Christ bought? He bought his church. What's his church? Those are his people. uh, Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved what? Loved the church. He gave himself up for what? For the church. That's the point that he's making here. If you notice in the the smaller print, in the left-hand column, Uh, We see Jesus praying in John chapter 17. And uh, about halfway through that passage, just to save a little time, notice what Jesus says. He says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those those you have given me, for they are yours. Then notice the passage from Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, who's writing this? Isaiah. Isaiah was a believer. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. That's, that's the idea of propitiation there. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify... How? Who? Many. Notice it doesn't say it will justify all. It says it will justify many, and He will bear their iniquities. Bear the iniquities of whom? Of the many. Those whom God has chosen for Himself. There's a, a brief passage I, I want to read, read to you. Uh, I didn't have room to put it in your notes. If you want to jot the reference down, you can read it for yourself later. But Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 and following... Notice what it says. Uh, This is is Jesus uh, teaching uh, in those last few days right before he went to the cross. And he's talking about the, 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 the end of time. And he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. Sounds like Judgment Day, doesn't it? That's exactly what it is they'll be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats he'll put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand, on his left no no offense susan even though you're sitting on the left right now put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left then the king will say to those on the right who is it on the right that's the sheep Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance. Notice, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. See, it it goes back to that again. Since the creation of the world. And then he says something similar uh, to the folks on the left, uh, that is the goats. And he says, then he will, verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So that doesn't sound good. You say so so what we see is at the end of time, is that at, at that at that great throne is that God separates folks. Here's, here's the Lord. And he's those over here on his right, referred to as the sheep. Those on the left are referred to as goats. Now, what God does not do, God does not take goats and turn them into sheep. There are two kinds of sheep. There are lost sheep and there are found sheep. And see, all of us are lost. And what is it that the good shepherd has promised to do? He always brings his children home. He always brings his sheep home. There's not a a true sheep. There's not one of his whom he chose from the foundation of the world that he will fail to bring safely in. Think about it. you got Jesus suspended on the cross. A thief and a robber on this side. A thief and a robber on this side. And what are they both doing early on? Man, they are... They are just cursing Jesus. They're giving Jesus a hard time just like everybody else is. And then all of a sudden, and Jesus is not up there preaching. You know, Jesus, uh, Jesus has, uh, when he was nailed to the cross, kept crying out, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing. And then Jesus talks about, uh, looks at John and at, at his mother and says, Behold your son, behold your mother. And John starts looking after Mary after that. And sometime during that time passes during those first three hours, these two guys are both just cursing at Jesus, giving Him a hard time. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, I mean, for no apparent reason, one of them looks over at Jesus and says, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And what does Jesus say? You'll be in paradise with me today you see here's a great example of a, of a sheep and a goat hey look at both of them you say boy there's a couple of goats if i ever saw them man the way they behave they got to both be goats but one of them was not a goat one of them was a lost sheep but guess what happened to that lost sheep just hours before he entered into eternity? What did the good shepherd do? The good shepherd found him and brought him home and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's it's such, a, such an important, important thing. Let's, uh, let's uh, look down at the summary and conclusion. We've only got about six or... Well, no, there's one thing I want to look at first. Uh, on, the, on the second page of your notes, there's a, uh, I've got a little passage from, with selected verses in it from Psalm 22. Uh, Psalm 22 is one of those prophetic Psalms, is written by David. But when you read it, and remember this is written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever set foot on the earth. Notice what Uh, David wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar at all? It's exactly what Jesus said. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and and am not silent. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. What does crucifixion do? you, You things start coming apart. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsher, a broken piece of pottery. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Remember one of the things that Jesus said. he Seven sayings from the cross. And one of them was, I'm thirsty. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. The, to a Jew, a Gentile was called a dog. Dogs have surrounded me. Remember when when Jesus was talking with a Syrophoenician woman, and she was wanting to be healed, and uh, he said, uh, he said you, don't give, you don't give the bread that belongs to the children to the dogs. He's talking about the Gentiles. You remember that woman's response? She said, and it really demonstrated her faith, how God was working in her life. She said, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs under the table. And, of course, she got what, uh, what she had come for. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. Remember, sur- surrounded by Gentiles, by, by Roman soldiers. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Crucifixion was unknown at the time David wrote this. It was started probably by the Carthaginians. It was turned into an art form by the Romans. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now, again, the point that I'm making here is that what Christ did in going to the cross was something that had been prophesied years and years earlier by David. But what had been prophesied was what God had already planned before he even put the first star into space. Uh, Again, I'll point you to the book of Ephesians to read about that. Now, let's go to our conclusion and uh, we'll kind of draw things together. Uh, There's one of my favorite hymns, and obviously I'm in no condition to sing it and wouldn't if I were, but notice uh, sometimes we, we sing these words and we just overlook these things. Look at this, Crown Him with Many Crowns by Matthew Bridges. Crown Him with many crowns, the Lamb upon His throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns, all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of Him who died for Thee. And hail Him as Thy matchless King through all eternity. Now who is it that Jesus died for? Crown Him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those He came to save. His glories now we sing who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Now why, why is this, why is limited atonement, and incidentally you don't have to believe this to be a Christian, why is limited atonement or particular redemption, that is that Christ came and died particularly for certain individuals, why is that important. Well, first of all, and I put this in italics in your notes there, the fact that Christ's atonement is is limited does not mean it's limited in its in its power. You know, it, it saves us to the uttermost. We're talking about being limited in extent. In fact, if you're talking about being limited in power, that's what this first option does here. We're saying that, well, Christ died for everybody everywhere, but I've got the power to say no, and I can keep Jesus from saving me. And the truth is, is that I don't think any of us in this room are more powerful than God, and He clearly can change any of us that He wants to change. So it's not a matter of limited in power. It has to do with being limited in scope or its extent. Now, let's see how that works out that Christ died only for God's elect, that is, those whom God chose before the uh, creation of the world, should be a real assurance for us as believers. Why should that assurance? Why, Why should that assurance? Well, if Christ did die for everybody everywhere, and everybody is not saved, How can I know for certain that I'm saved? And how can I know for certain that if I'm saved right now, I'm still going to be saved tomorrow or the next day? You see, Christ's death didn't just make it possible for somebody to be saved. His death guaranteed, His death guaranteed that all that the Father gave Him, all that the Father who chose, chosen by the Father, who were given to the Son, we read those passages, that those are the ones for whom He died, and that guarantees that they will come to Him and that they will be forgiven of all of their sins. But there's another thing also, and probably even more important than that, and that is that Christ died only for God's elect glorifies God because... It makes the ultimate reason that anybody is saved right in the hands of God. It exalts God's grace. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Him. Praise be to God.
0: You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax-deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.